eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast presented by STP. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today on the fourth floor of the NASCAR Plaza building in Uptown Charlotte. And I'm pleased to be joined by NASCAR President Brent Dewar. Thanks for being here, Brent. Thanks, Nate. Good to be with you. You just came from meeting at the R&D Center. I know you got another meeting after this. I take it it's been a very busy summer for you. It is. It's an interesting time for us We um, as we as we head into the playoffs. I mean, this is... You know, we give, everybody you know talks about the you know the, the part of the summer, but as we ramp up through the excitement of the countdown, who's going to make the playoffs? We're also planning next year, so right. this is a prime time for us where we work with the team owners, we try to get the rules package for eighteen, and it's it's a it's an extraordinarily busy time for us. I but bet, it's, uh, but it's fun. And big news for you personally as well with this this new position, which NASCAR announced in July, and I know that required a little bit of a relocation for you. Not that the Florida region is new to you or being in Daytona, but you were based in New York, and now you've move the family elsewhere, right? Yeah, it's 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 a big deal. I'm, um, I'm humbled and honored to be the fourth president, I guess, of NASCAR. And, you know, I've been that kind of guy that uh, is, you know, kind of, you know, put me in coach, you know, let me play the role, any kind of role. Um, so I haven't really been about titles. But when you think back of uh, the predecessors, the three previous folks. Uh, <laughs> some big names there. Some big names there. And that. you put it into context <laughs> of, uh, of what they've contributed to the sport and what it means uh, to be given this uh, responsibility and opportunity by the France family. It, uh, it's not to be taken lightly. On a personal basis, um, you know, I've been based in Daytona, and my wife and daughter have been living in New York City the last four years, and I've been doing the commute. Uh, it's been pretty tough. And you So know, you were based in Daytona since you became the COO. Yes. So I've, I've okay. always been in Daytona, but yeah. my uh, wife and daughter didn't make the move with me. So uh, as part of this, uh, okay. you know, the commitment to, to this role uh, – you know, additional responsibility. They agreed that being with dad was an important thing. So you see my daughter at the track with me uh, quite often, and that's been her way to uh, stay connected on the weekend. So uh, it's pretty exciting. She likes her new school, and, and that's probably the big, biggest the biggest accomplishment of the last two weeks for me. I've seen her frequently with you at driver's meetings. Certainly, she seems to be the apple of your eye. I actually went back and looked at a 2013 interview I did with you, Brent, uh, when I was at USA Day, when you'd just been installed as the, the chief operating officer. And you told me you took her to Daytona when she was three years old because 
because you wanted to see the race through her eyes and understand what that next generation of fans was about. Yeah, that was that was the year that uh, of the delay with the concrete. That was the year that Jamie <laughs> right. Jamie McMurray uh, won won the Daytona 500. So we, she was in victory lane with me. Uh, but so she was just you know a tiny little mite. She uh, she had a great time and she had her Jimmy Johnson jacket. She's now migrated. No disrespect to Jimmy, she's uh, <laughs> she's moved on in her drivers. Danica was a big influence in her life, and uh, and now she is a passionate Ryan Blaney fan. And uh, so it's interesting. I still I still watch the sport through her eyes. And and when I was with her in Pocono, when when Ryan won, uh, she was so mad at me. I had to get her back to school. We stayed to the end of the race, and she wanted to go to Victory Lane, and I had to get her back to New York City. And she was furious with me. She said, "Dad, it's the 99th win of the Wood Brothers." She knew everything about it. <laughs> and uh, and so I promised her, uh, you know, maybe to get to see the hundredth race. And so uh, I know the Wood Brothers are always looking forward to seeing Olivia at the track because it's they're you know they're voting for the hundredth. So. Uh, and it was interesting, Nate. I mean, her pure joy when, when Ryan won, mm-hmm. I liken it back to growing up in Canada, you know, my team winning the Stanley Cup for the first time, that raw emotion of of that waiting and, and to see it through her eyes was, was amazing. And that's, that's what the sport's about. It's about family. It was based on family. Uh, and it still exists today in, 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 its, in its truest form. Did she get her selfie with Ryan Blaney before she left? She or? did. She I had a it. selfie <laughs> from the driver's meeting uh, oh, okay. in the driver's meeting. So she, she, she believes she's his good luck charm. So <laughs> I'm just going to let her go with it. And I'm, I'm sure Ryan, and he's, he's so gracious, as is Danica, as is Jimmy, as are all the drivers. They're so gracious with the fans and, and my daughter's no different. Uh, it's pr- pretty fun to see it. What do you hear from her, Brent, and her friends that I'm sure you, you see like about what they want from NASCAR? What does that next generation seek in terms of the experience? It's a great question. I, I, I would say, you know, at that age group, um, she's, she's really active. She she likes the, the facts and the details of the race. And mm-hmm. she definitely likes the, you know, the drivers and their personalities and getting to see them. Um, you know, obviously being the daughter of a NASCAR executive, she gets a little access, but really not much more access than, than any other fan can see. And so she really likes the drivers and their personality, but she she likes the, the technical side. I think the biggest difference I've, I've noticed is she's got a little bit older. She wants to socialize during the race, and she wants to talk to me. She mm-hmm. wants to talk about what she's seen. And I think that's part of the balance we're trying to find is that social thing. So for her, she loves stage racing. She just thinks it's the greatest thing. Break in action. She can ask me all kinds of questions. She knows it's coming. She loves the race within the race. Mm-hmm. And uh, she also likes the digital products. So she'll watch a race with race view, where for her, it's just the coolest thing. You know, she can see TV broadcasts. She can see the live race. But she'll take the race view product from NASCAR.com, and she'll select her driver. So she'll see where Danica is relative to Ricky. She'll see Blaney relative to Suarez. And so she can select the drivers within the race. And that's pretty cool to see how she figures it out. And you mentioned that you can relate to it because you grew up in Western Canada. And so you, of course, grew up in a hockey country. There's a lot of racing fans in Canada. I don't want to discredit them at all. But it sounds like you had a team that you cheered for back then. Yeah. So in those those days, it was always the our families, the Maple Leafs or the Canadians. And, okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, later in life, uh, when I got to college, the Vancouver Canucks came by. So I grew up in Western Canada in Vancouver. And my dad was a high school principal, a great athlete great little hockey player in his own right. So we all played sports. But my dad was not a car guy. He was probably the least car guy you would ever meet. I remember watching, a, I've told this story a number of times, I remember watching a race on a Wide World of Sports and it's early in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, West Coast time. And I was by myself and I watched this race and uh, they were Corvettes racing. 
don't I, I can't tell you to this day what the race was. Um, but I fell in love with Corvettes, studied everything I could. There was no short track in our town, but we had a drag strip. And this uh, middle school, this friend of mine, he loved the drag strip, and he took me there. Started that passion, and then later on in college, went for a job for a General Motor interview with General GM, and I, I didn't even know what they made. And I realized these were the Corvette guys. That, that link of life and then going off to becoming the head of Chevrolet and designing and developing cars uh, around the world uh, all comes back to that first inkling of racing in my little town in, in middle school. So your interest in the automobile industry started through a racetrack, essentially. It, definitely, definitely. You know, I liked it from the race on TV, but but it's, it's, it's like we have today. You can watch, uh, you can listen here on, on the radio. You can enjoy the sport. I mean, I still enjoy listening to racing on the radio. TV does a great job. But there's nothing like the sights and sound and smell and motion of going to a live event and racing. It is different, probably different than any other sport. And that drag strip provided that for me. It was that raw motion of uh, experience at a drag strip. Uh, much like many people see in their local short tracks or drag strip in their communities. So that was the bug. And so that led you to, of course, to General Motors, as you mentioned, Brent. And how long were you there before coming to Almost 30 years. 30 yeah. years, okay. Yeah. And I know you were very involved with some cutting-edge projects such as you know, green initiatives. And I think, didn't you work on the Volt I did. Launch? I did. Yeah. yeah, the pleasure of launching the Volt uh, as the head of Chevrolet at that time. And so all, all my life, and it was the same interest in the same time in that middle school back in this part of Vancouver Island, where I lived at an influence of teacher and uh, was very into the environment. And in those yeah. days, kind of focused the kids and it was uh, reforesting in our area. And, and that's sort of my environmental beliefs, you know, what an impact that, a, you know, an elementary school teacher can make in your life. And uh, so I was always a passionate environmentalist in the car business. So I worked on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles when I lived in Brazil. Uh, we worked on uh, ethanol and biofuels, re- renewables, uh, hydrogen fuel cells in Germany, and then the electric cars back here in the U.S. So all different propulsion systems and uh, uh, really truly believe that, you know, as, as, a, as an automaker and as a citizen, you have to you have to walk softly and have a smaller footprint in, in what you do. Yeah. Well, as the owner of a, a car that gets over 40 miles of the gallon, I'm, I'm all about reducing the carbon footprint as much as possible. But for someone like yourself who's been a lifelong racing fan, how did you reconcile that attention to the environmental consciousness with five miles per gallon internal combustion leaded fuel uh, concept in stock car racing no it's a great it's a great question so i mean in most of the racing around the world we would do that we were always pushing the envelope Uh, each manufacturer had that and so whether it was the you know what's now imsa today whether it was biofuels Mm -hmm. we raced there was cellulosic with our corvettes uh we we were influential in talking to nascar at the time when i was on the manufacturing side to move to the biofuels. That was that was a big mandate from our company at the time. And, and it showcases, we were trying to showcase that biofuels have all the uh, performance requirements that you need in high-performance racing, but also, you know, reduce the greenhouse gases. And you can go all the way to 100% like we did in some series. You can have a blend or combination. It was more of a statement to try to match it that uh, if you look at electric cars today, I mean, if you've driven them, they're instantaneous torque, they're great performance. Maybe they don't have a sound of an internal combustion engine. But I think what gets lost a little bit is we have an energy crisis around the world, and you need all of the environmental solutions. It's not electric versus hydrogen versus versus biofuels. You need to pursue all of them at some mm-hmm. point because if we consume energy like in the rest of the world, like we do in the Western world, uh, we have an energy challenge. And I think all energy sources have to get cleaner. And I think there's a passion around the world to do that. Where do you think NASCAR is on that spectrum, Brent, in terms of looking for the We're agnostic. Future? We're yeah. honestly agnostic. So we've, we've designed our, 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 our programs to 
you know, shift the energy propulsion systems if they need to go in a different direction. So we work closely with our manufacturers on what, what that should be. Um, these are imp- it's important for the manufacturers to have the cars, particularly NASCAR, reflect that. Uh, what the future, whether from a brand design, we saw that in Gen 6, and we're working with them on a variety of things for Gen 7 and beyond. Of course, you're playing an instrumental role in that in leading both the competition and the marketing side of NASCAR right now. You're the fourth man to hold this job, following only in the footsteps of Bill France, Bill France Jr., Mike Hilton, Brent Dewar. I know you all faced unique challenges and climates depending on era, society, you know, wh- where things were at that time. What do you feel like you face as the NASCAR president versus your three predecessors? You know, it's a great question. I think I think we all go through different phases. I mean, I I still approach, I mentioned, you know, thinking through my eyes of my daughter, the sport, I, I am ultimately a fan, first mm-hmm. and foremost. So, I mean, I, you know, I I represent the business part of NASCAR. That's my job, is do the business. And I, I struggle at times with a lot of the, the media programs we do where there's just too much talk about the business of football, the business of NASCAR, the business of soccer, the big business of that, with the fans. And we have some of our venues which do a great job, but they get off of talk sports radio to talking talk sports business radio. That's a different channel. I'd be happy to go in every day to talk about the business of the sport. Uh, But the fans really want to engage about the sport. And uh, I I see that part of the challenge because we're in a transition, a natural transition on the business of the sport. And many of them go through that. And so uh, what we've instituted with Mike Helton and myself the last... uh, you know, I'd say four or five years, four in my part, along with Brian France, is engaging the industry in the business mm-hmm. conversations. It never really was done before. It was done on a very fragmented basis. And so I think that's what we're bringing. We're bringing that this is 2017 and business gets done differently. Um, we will make better decisions by the operative word as collaboration. Uh, but what happens is we need to not get ahead of things in terms of the business aspects of today versus what we're planning in the future and mixing that in a messaging to the fans because fans mm-hmm. really don't want to hear about you know some of the things we're working on initiatives that are behind the scenes. And I had that training on the auto side, and uh, we never talked about the future car because we had the one we had to sell today. And so we separated we separated the business to say, how do we focus on today's car and make that better and have that storyline? But you have to work on advanced engineering. You have to work on advanced uh, technology. Just don't get ahead of it because you don't want to not have the enjoyment of today's car, if that makes sense. So that's the transition we're going through. And I would say, I would say by and large, the industry, after the four years I've been here, they understand it better today. But it's, it's an evolving learning. The culture has been hard to change in that regard where – we may talk about, you know, should we study quieter engines? Oh, my God. I mean, we, we do a test, and all of a sudden it's, it's right. in the market. You know, we're going to do something crazy to the engines. No, no. It's going to be purely authentically NASCAR. But if you don't work on those things, then you'll never be ready for the change. Sure. And uh, I've learned pretty valuable lessons in these four years that the NASCAR fans are all about change providing it's relevant to what they want and the benefit they want. What they don't like is talking about change. And I see people talking about change when we're really just studying things. And it's uh, that's the evolution difference, I would say, between what we're doing today and maybe what we've done 20 years ago. The story, obviously, about quieter engines or muffled sounds, whatever you want to call it, got a lot of traction. But from what I understood, you guys have like 100 things that you might be looking at, and that might be like exactly. 70 through 80 or something exactly. like that on your list. Yeah, yeah and, that's part of, and that's part of the background that many of us have come with. You know, we, we in our minds separate <clears throat> advanced engineering studies. You know, you'll never have an electric car unless you start working on tests. I mean, 10 years ago, we were working on driverless cars, you know, long before they became in vogue because... Sure. 
the benefits to have a driverless car lead to many safety initiatives on cars that we have today. So to have that happen, you end up with you know, driver avoidance and you know, other computer-to-computer communications in cars. Um, and the benefit ultimately someday would be a driverless car, but you, you, you get other benefits along the way. So that's probably the hardest lesson that I keep uh, working on and trying to make sure we can find the balance because you know, the future is just a series of today a bunch of days run together. And so you just have to plan ahead and get the organizations to understand what, what you need to talk about, what you don't in these studies. So it's kind of difficult, though, Brent, because corporate culture in Fortune 500 America is like so endemic to NASCAR that you can't help but talk about sponsorship and about the business side. But like you said, you guys would probably prefer that the conversation also focuses maybe a little bit more on the racing side than the business side, even though the business side is very important to making everything go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's it's at times it gets out of proportion. I mean, always yeah. the business of the sports comes up, and it doesn't matter what we're, we're all – it happens to everybody. And, I mean, we have certain journals. That's all they do is talk about the business of the sport. But I think it's the balance. I mean, the fans – and we have a great analytics and insights group. And it was a bit of a surprise to me coming into NASCAR how deep the research is and the analytics are on, on, on the fan and understanding the NASCAR fans. So we definitely take them in mind, but we keep it in right proportions to try to understand that. And it just needs more balance. We've got such great storylines. The racing is arguably as good as it's ever been. Uh, and we should be talking about that a little bit more is probably my, my personal frustration. So have you figured out what the magic bullet is to get to change that narrative and to, to focus it more on? I think it's part of today's world we're living in. I mean, yeah. um, you know, when... When news radio becomes reality TV, I mm-hmm. mean, we're, we're experiencing this as, uh, as a societal change. Train, uh, train wrecks and plane crashes tend to dominate. Uh, the good sure. news stories tend not to be there. But I think on balance, uh, sports are entertainment. They're released to a lot of these things that happen. And I think it's just, um, it's just more hard work. You've got to keep pivoting and making sure the storylines, whether it's the young drivers, which are incredible, you know, that's been eight years in the making to, to the way we are today, to... You know some of the you know the stage racing to some of the really really cool stuff that's happening on the track uh, and the collaboration. I think there's some really good storylines. Okay, let's pause the podcast here to tell you about a product from our presenting sponsor STP, and that is the Ultra Five in One Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. For more than sixty years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products such as this to help engines perform at their best. And this newest product, the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline. That helps keep fuel fresh during storage, especially in engines that are stored over an extended period of time. I have used products such as these for years in my personal cars. They're very easy to use. You just put the contents in the gas tank, and they improve fuel efficiency and also keep your engines running smoothly. The STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer is compatible with all two- and four-stroke engines, including lawnmowers, boats, and motorcycles. And one bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. So be sure to check out the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. And now let's return to our conversation with Brent Dewar. 
the process that you bring to the job brand. I did a little bit of research and talking to some people. I mean, I hear that you're a spreadsheets guy, you're a numbers guy, a presentation guy, you're a grinder. If there were more hours in the day that you could work, obviously family is important too, but you would work as many hours in the day as, as possible. It sounds like you're a bit of a policy wonk. All those qualities sort of make you the right fit, you feel like, for this job? You know, I, I've definitely experienced, I think, from a background, um, it's, it's familiar territory for me. I, I would say I'm definitely... Uh, an overachiever in terms of work. I mean, I, I, I like it. I mean, so we're talking about racing, Nate. I mean, you get to come to work every day and, <laughs> and go racing. I've had different roles in my in my life and career that are a bit more serious than racing. So I have to keep it all in perspective. But it, it's an important sport. It's an important business. Uh, it's a huge responsibility to uh, be the caretaker of the NASCAR brand. I mean, it's a great brand of 70 years, an American success story. If anybody that, that, that's a brand leader, you, you want to make sure that you're harvesting the core and you're leaving it better when you leave uh, on that trajectory. And I felt that at, when I was at Chevrolet. I was very proud to be the head of Chevrolet. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very neutral today. I'm very uh, great partnerships with Ford and uh, Toyota and Chevrolet today. So, But I wouldn't say it's really a policy wonk. It's really about getting the process discipline in place so that you're in the position to in, invite the right folks to make the best decision. Mm-hmm. We make decisions every day. And if we have the best input, we'll make the best decision. And if it's not exactly right, we'll make a better one tomorrow. We uh, deliberately engage the councils to allow the drivers and the team owners and the manufacturers and the tracks to have a voice, a more structured voice. It wasn't say the way we did it before was wrong. But it was whoever the last, maybe the last voice you heard, or mm-hmm. maybe the one that yelled the loudest or um, threatened the most or cajoled the least or whatever. Um, and so we, th- that still happens in any sport today and any business today. But I think we have a more disciplined approach to bring it through. And what it does, and I learned this by living in Brazil, we had so much change in Brazil. But the more disciplined you were, you can make decisions faster, if that makes sense. Yeah. I actually thought it would be the opposite when I got there. And, but, but that's what this is about. So those experiences, um, this is a fast-paced pace sport. You've got to move quickly. Uh, I do sleep not enough. I should sleep more. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's more fun when you're awake, I guess, because uh, the, you know, the wake part's pretty fun. Well, as you mentioned, Brent, this concept of being collaborative, which is the buzzword, and I'll confess sometimes I poke fun of it because you hear it so much, but there's no better way to describe it. And it is such a sea change from... A little bit of an iron-fisted approach that guided NASCAR through its first 60 or so years. You've taken a little bit of umbrage because you feel like sometimes, you said this on Twitter in, in relation to a, a serious XM NASCAR conversation about collaboration being confused with, as you felt, as a sign of weakness versus a sign of strength. And I thought it was interesting. You have said that it's harder to do it this way than the other way, but it's worth the effort. It's worth the results. Yes, it's significantly harder um, to bring the stakeholders together and because they, they all come from a point of view, whether it's experience or culture, um, what their competitive advantage is or what it, whatever they bring to the party. And that's not unique to NASCAR or sports, but the same in business. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I learned this working on the retail franchise with franchise dealers. And I learned that if you involve them every step of the way, one, they get educated, you're, you're learning, you're educating yourself along the way significantly harder to do it. Doesn't mean it has to be slower, but you can if you if if everybody understands the rules of engagement, you can move through it a lot quicker. There is a time and place for a benevolent dictatorship. And, um, I see that and I see some of the advantages of that. Um, but I would also say it's 2017. We live in a complex world and uh, our our goal, our mantra internally is how do you manage complexity simply? 
and not take a white sheet of, sheet of paper and make it complex. And, uh, and I see that, and I, I did take uh, umbrage on some of those comments <laughs> because I'm a fan. I listen, right. to, I listen to you guys like a fan listens to you right. guys. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not auditing uh, what the guys are saying on the course. I, you know, I have a choice of 300 dials to select, and I select Channel 90 as I'm driving to work in the morning. So when I see the folks contradicting themselves on a daily basis or back and forth, I go, okay, enough's enough. Let's talk about racing. I wanted to talk. I wanted to hear from the fans and talking about we've only got you know two more races left who's going to make who's going to make it and some incredible storylines coming out of the previous weekend of who won and uh i thought it was enough you know 45 minutes into the show i pulled i i my wife will be happy my daughter will be, i pulled over the side of the road i didn't drive in text i pulled over and i texted in saying, <laughs> let's talk about racing they, they had a good fun with it they're, they're good guys do you ever get to the point though where you, you feel as if there are too many voices you have to listen to or is that just part of the job you know, we're we're proud to have a sport with, you know, arguably 80 million fans on an annual basis that, that consume the sport from avids to casual fans. And you can never have too many voices. I mean, so I think what it is is, is having a, an ability to process the voices and to hear it. And, and I liken that to when I was in, in, in the car business. I mean, our Corvette and Camaro fans, our customers were passionate about everything. If we touched the tail lamp, they would be outraged or we move something around. So if, if you listen to them, you wouldn't have ever built a fifth, sixth, seventh generation cars. But you had to stay close to them to hear them and really, you know, not everybody can articulate what they're feeling. And mm-hmm. Sometimes they, they argue with emotion or symptoms as opposed to really what they're saying. And so you have to get good at that over time. Um, there's a big difference between a passionate, loyal owner and a sports fan. There's, there's, there's a reason it's called fanatics. Uh, uh, you know, fan is from the word fanatic. Is, and when I came over to this side, it's really 365 days, 24-7. They never turn off. And that's actually a, a good thing. That's a nice problem to have. And so you have to figure out how to, how, to, how to be able to sift and sort through it. But you also have to, you have to know your sport. The beauty of this, Nate, is this is all I do. I mean, it's, I only do NASCAR. Now, I, I don't live in a bubble. I watch everything around me, and I'm making sure that I, you know, I don't look at the lens of the world. But we do NASCAR. So we're, we're fans of the sport. We're also studying it. And that gives us an advantage where everybody else we talk to is doing something else. So if you're, when I was in the auto business, we were intimately involved with NASCAR. But we had a real business to run, and racing was just part of it. And we mm-hmm. raced another series. Uh, so we have to do what we do well, and we have to be able to hear those voices and be able to address their concerns today, but more importantly for tomorrow and really importantly for the next 10 years. Your job, has it changed much from COO to president? Is it mainly a new title? Because it seems as if, Brent, I mean, you're running day to day pretty much. I mean, Brian is obviously the person you report to, Brian France, but it seems like we see you at the racetrack a little bit more than we see him. And, and I know he's kind of more long, focused on long-term stuff. So did did your role change much from CEO to president? Are there things you're doing now that you didn't do before? Well, I would, I would say it's a continuation, Nate. I, um, you know, some would argue I was doing it before, but but it is different. It's different. It's it's the role that, uh, you know, Mike and I play together in managing the part of the NASCAR business uh, with Steve Phelps and Steve O'Donnell and Jill Gregory and, and our leadership team. We have a great, great leadership team at NASCAR. And so I think it's that plus working closer uh, with the family side of the business um, and making sure we can move that forward. So, um, you know, there's an expectation of my role to understand the track business, whether it's SMI and ISC, even more than, than I was doing before, and then try to move much more from the operations to that middleware to the longer term. And I was still doing that, but, uh, but clearly the, man, the mantle and mandate is, 
is trying to have my my uh, great team leaders really focus on the day-to-day operations. So I'm still part of that, but I need to. I'm 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 being asked uh, to pivot to the medium term and the longer term, and so I'll start to split that. Doesn't mean I can't go to the tracks. I have to go to the tracks because, you know, I have a great relationship with the team owners from the charter process, and I've learned in these last four years that's where I connect with them best. You know, I can do it here in Charlotte, but it's harder. I can pretty much get them at a track on a Sunday, and they'll seek me out on a Sunday. They'll look for the business part of NASCAR. If they need to talk about something, they'll, they'll get to me on that. If they're looking at a competition matter, they'll get to Mike at the track. And so it's managing those expectations that they know you'll be there. Do you talk to Brian pretty much daily? Multiple times daily. Multiple times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. multiple times. He's highly engaged uh, in the sport. And I think it's a, you know, it's an interesting, sometimes it's, you know, I've known him for years, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an unfair criticism because he's done it differently. You talked about the evolution. He's done it very differently than his dad. His dad was a legendary guy. Uh, the contributions Brian made to the sport and, you know, from the broadcast deals to bringing the digital assets back in-house to NASCAR.com, a really land-breaking aspects. And so he, he's a different he, – you know, he doesn't want to see the race from the back of the hauler. He wants to see the 360 view of the race. He's not one to walk down, you know, the with the cars like I do. I mean, I what I do. I mean, I, you know, I wish everybody good luck, and you know, the team's up in the up in up in the control center, and I, I that's just what I do. I, I like it. I'm as part of a fan, uh, but he's hack, he's actively engaged at the track. He's at the track a lot more than most people see him or know, uh, but he's not looking to 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 that, and uh, he's he's observing what's going on and. He's got incredible insights, um, and I think it's just from growing up in the sport. It's you know I can imagine being on the knee of of your father and your grandfather and and what he's learned over mm-hmm. these years. It's incredible. There's no faint of heart, no playing it safe. There's no hugging trees, no hugging it out. There's no asking permission, and there's no apologies. There's guts. There's glory. There's NASCAR. All season long on NBC and NBCSN. NASCAR's going through a changing of the guard with some stars who have carried the sport for the past generation who resonated with their fans very deeply. Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, and now Downer Jr. is the latest as the sun sets you know, on his career here toward the end of the 2017 season. How do you look at that from your role as president? What, what does NASCAR have to do to, to prepare for that exit of that triumvirate of stars? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I mean, this was well underway before I ever got here four years ago. So I would say literally seven, eight years ago uh, through the industry action plan and driver star power, uh, the creation of programs like NASCAR Next and uh, D4D, Drive for Diversity, uh, those initiatives were well underway. Now, when I came in, you know, I, I assessed, you know, I, I didn't have a stake in it. I didn't create it. Uh, you know, I had, you know, obviously a lot of background to evaluate. Does, does this make sense? Are we on track? Are we on strategy? And arguably, couldn't argue with anything of it. So when I realized we were on point, um, and my job was to accelerate it. And uh, that's one of Brian's greatest quotes is pace. We're in the racing business. We've got to pick up the pace. And so we picked up the pace and tried to accelerate a number of those initiatives. And so we've been preparing. We we know every decade we go through this cycle. And, you know, I remember being a fan growing up in Western Canada that, oh, the world was going to come to an end when all my drivers were going to leave. It doesn't come to an end. And it cycles through that process. So uh, we're, in, we're in a very unique time. Uh, we're, we're a group are, are, are rotating out. Uh, but arguably the, the young kids coming in, they're not just younger. They're really good wheelmen. 
and uh, we've got some real women coming up uh, up through the circuits uh, at the younger younger levels as well. And and I, I think that's the key thing is making sure they're ready. And so we we run a combine and we. We make, ins- make sure they get ready, and uh, when you see some of these kids racing these cars at 16, 17, 18, and tracking them, um, it's, our, our sport's a little bit different than other sports, you know, but, uh, but the same principles are in place. Another way that it's a little bit different is the business structure, and of course, you, you mentioned charters, Brent. You, you played a big role in implementing that last year. Year two, how has it gone, and what does the future look like? Because obviously there are some challenges for some teams in terms of sponsorship, and I, I think people are looking toward 2018 and asking, will there still be 36 charters with the current financial landscape? Where do you think things stand on the charter? Front? So I, th- I think the charter is a huge enabler. So if you think back from you know the concept of you know uh, NASCAR Next and the driver development. Mm-hmm. The Charters was really designed for the same basis to allow a mechanism to create long-term enterprise value for team owners to allow them to transition from one owner to the next. If you think back at the history of the sport, we're going to celebrate 70 years next year, and for every year it was a one-year track agreement for the track to sanction a race the following year, and. For a team owner, it was a one-year agreement. And so if you think about it, um, amount of capital expenditures to modernize a racetrack today, never mind safer barriers or the track surface, uh, the demands that everybody expects from a sporting experience, really capital intensive. So we entered into a five-year agreement with the racetracks to allow them some stability to go to finance and to bank and do some things. And the same same applies to to the team owners. Uh, Prior to that, it was really just a liquidation. When you when you wound down your business, you would liquidate your parts and pieces and go on. So, wanted to provide a mechanism. It's not it's not a panacea. It's not a solution other than it's a mechanism to allow team owners to start building some enterprise value. And it's and it's definitely doing that. We knew when we started it, we didn't sell the first charters. We granted them based on some criteria, and we knew there would be some movement, some dislocation, some trading, some swapping, and it's happening. And uh, the market is being created. And uh, we need a mechanism to attract, much like younger drivers, to have owners to transition into the model. Some of the other initiatives we're working on, on the business side of the case model, these 100 initiatives you talk about, will also make the, the business case better and more attractive. And I would say we're probably in step two of a, uh, you know, a 30-step plan. And if we didn't have charters and we didn't have this, uh, you know, collaboration we have with the industry, we wouldn't have had a mechanism to do this. And uh, so it's it's growing. I, it's, uh, I'm very proud of it. Um, and it's given us an opportunity to build for the future. Is it something you'll reevaluate again after the season in terms of numbers? or? Well, it, we have a five-year agreement with the race team owners and then an option uh, to renew. So they, they received a nine-year agreement. And we have the ability at the end of the fifth year to look at some of the parameters. We, we recognize there would be ebb and flows that would happen. And, um, and so we will continue to work on it. And, you know, these are our business partners, and we're working hard to recognize some of the economic challenges to make racing. And I would say the operative word is we're not looking for cost reduction. We're looking to take waste out of the system. And again, that's my automotive training background is, you know, I, I look around, and I see waste everywhere. And it's, it's any of us that worked in that business, you want to get that out because it doesn't, it's not interesting for a fan. It's nothing they see. And it's, it's not beneficial to making the cars go faster. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we're working on um, through this mechanism to make racing better, make the teams uh, more stable for the long term. Is there one example you can give me, like some of the teams are spending money on that you guys are saying, hey, maybe we can yeah. streamline this? Yeah, it's it's it really is across the board, Nate. I mean, 
what, what's interesting about racing is everybody chases the elusive speed, right? You know, speed is not an engine necessarily. It's horsepower, it's aero, it's, you know, design, it's the balance of the car and, and the way you structure the rules. So I would say, you know, you'll, you'll spend a lot of time in a smaller box with marginal, marginal effect. And so by working together, having the competition committees, uh, we started with the, with the manufacturers and putting the three manufacturers in the room together was an interesting four years ago because they're highly competitive in the marketplace and highly competitive in the racetrack. But we really got them to focus on is what were areas of common benefit and common concern. And we started knocking those off. Same thing with the team owners. They want to beat each other badly every single weekend. But there's a, there's a way to come together from a common standpoint to beat it. And so, quite frankly, there's no limitations. It's all aspects of the car. Take the waste out of the system. And, and that's part, of, again, the learning process that we're kind of going through. And it will, it'll just make better racing for the fans, and they won't they'll be oblivious to it, and they don't need to worry about it. It's us talking about the business of NASCAR as opposed to the benefit will be a more stable business system that the race teams can then focus more on racing. You came out about start times. I know some people in the industry aren't happy about it, but 3 p.m. starts are, are a necessity in some ways for West Coast viewership. And as obviously as somebody who works in the TV industry, I can appreciate this. When you're balancing the interests of a few million potential viewers watching on TV versus a few hundred or a few thousand at a track that a track owner and promoter understandably is worried about like, hey, I don't want them staying too late and having to drive home on a Sunday night. That example of like collaboration and how you listen to different voices, how do you balance those voices? We're a national sport. And we have to. We can't forget we're a national sport. And the right. comment I was making, um, we, we do phenomenally on the West Coast. Even people now, didn't understand. I think what you said about the LA market, right? Incredible. Right. I mean, yeah. you got Kyle Larson and Kevin Harvick, mm-hmm. and you know even Casey King coming from uh, from up in the Washington area and Bethel before that. I mean, huge West Coast audience. But but I think what a lot of people don't understand is that as the day progresses, you know, households watching television, we call them HUD levels. As the day goes on, there's just more, a bigger audience. It not only brings in the West Coast, it brings in more of the East Coast as well. So I think, I think there was a misunderstanding of what that means. Later start times just means a bigger audience. It doesn't mean you're going to have a better rating or anything else. You still have to have a great product. You have to work and you got to do all the rest of the things. What's interesting, many of the promoters wanted the later start time because they had more time of activation. When I was, when I was on the manufacturer side, when we would have an auto show, and if I could get a fan for two to three minutes looking at a car, that was gold. I mean, mm-hmm. we were the ultimate tailgate. Uh, a couple of the comments from a few of the track operators, it's not consistent. I mean, they just, you know, they might have a certain demographic or whatnot. I would say for next year, we're looking at fine-tuning it about 30 minutes, maybe earlier, and not really anything more than we're just trying to make sure that we hit the sweet spot where we get from a competitor. Because the first thing is start time. The next thing is competition, the way you're competing at that same hour. Uh, we're a Sunday afternoon predominantly sport, and we can hold our own against most sports uh, through throughout the year. Uh, but we want to make sure we're finishing for both Fox and NBC at the key point because we like to finish at the break to prime time. We don't want to go up against Game of Thrones and all the rest <laughs> of the stuff on a Sunday night. Right. That's not who we are. Um, and our fans, because we're founded on family and and uh, those those aspects. So we'll keep fine-tuning it, but uh, we got to rem- we have to remember we're not a regional sport. We haven't been a regional sport for a long time. Sure. We're a national sport. And, and national sports aren't running early in the afternoon. So possible compromise, 2.30 p.m. versus 3 yeah, we'll start mar- times next year. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll plus or minus when, 
on an event by event basis. A little bit trying to get a bit more consistent as well. On that. Okay, my last one for you, Brent, is a, a little bit of a stock question. I've had several people on this podcast this year, and I've asked them all this. I'm sure it's no surprise to you to know that Tesla had a market cap that exceeded GM's at one point earlier this year, which of course got people thinking, like, wow, like you said, the autonomous car era is pretty much here. How does NASCAR remain relevant in terms of that? You've obviously done a lot of work in terms of looking at the future and what it's going to look like when their driverless vehicles are predominant on the road. How does NASCAR fit into that? So you're not asking me about the Tesla stock price relative to other <laughs> automotive companies. I, I have, if I have you a, want to weigh in on I that as a, well. I have a point of view on that as well. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. So I... I I don't. I I think anything that's driverless and along those things, it's a technology play, and I think many of those elements will find their way into race cars everywhere. Um, we're not going to see driverless race cars um, because I think I think it's at the end of the day for us, it is about our driver and our star power. I, I'm still. I was mesmerized when I met Dale Senior so many years ago at these guys running at 200 miles an hour with you know an inch between the cars their eye hand coordination it's still a marvel i marvel at it today i i know i can't do that my eyes to hand are anywhere the skill level so we have incredible athletes and um, i think that's misunderstood in our sport i mean these guys are running marathons and triathlons and you know a couple of them qualify for kona every year i mean it's incredible the mm-hmm. conditioning they go through so i think what we'll see is We'll be positioned for a technology. I think one of the things that we've been trying to tell the story, we're very much a high-tech sport. And uh, I think a lot of people are believe we're not, but we really are. And that story needs to get told in a relevant way. We're not technology for te- technology's sake, but relevant technology is what we've pursued in the right balance. So I think we'll be fine with, with that. I think uh, what's interesting working with the manufacturers that we currently have, they're incredible tech companies, probably more so tech than, than Tesla as a tech company. Uh, they just don't get credited for that, um, mm-hmm. for the technology they develop. That's an, that's, a, that's an issue on the equity markets and whether you should buy or, or do something. But, you know, you look at Ford and Toyota and, and Chevrolet, um, they would get argued that their success is in their, getting in their way from their valuation of the future. And I, I disagree with that. I, mm-hmm. I really do. Um, I think uh, I think the auto industry is strong, uh, both domestically and around the world. And I think we're going to continue to bring those relevant technologies to NASCAR in, in the right way that makes, makes sense for us in the business model that makes sense that our fans would embrace. And I think that's the key. Uh, so uh, we're excited about what they're bringing and, and uh, how we can adapt that to our sport. So even if there are less fans driving cars, there are always going to be drivers racing them. You, you know what it is, Nate? It's, 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 it's really about everybody loves to race. Yeah. And I even see it. I, I talk about the uh, seeing the sport through the eyes of my, my, my daughter at times. And, I mean, we would race to the elevator in New York City. <laughs> and we would race to the corner to go to school. And and we actually did a commercial last year. I don't know if you recall. And that was sure. yeah, us talking that. about yeah. it. So as as we were, you know, in our earliest days as man and woman, you know, getting chased by another, you know, uh, another Neanderthal race, we won because we ran faster. I mean, they were stronger, bigger, and we were we were quicker. So I think it's in our nature to get up and race. And so I believe racing will be part of this. And what we need to do is continue that relevance and, uh, and take NASCAR core forward leave some of the baggage behind, but really, really evolve to a point. And I think I'm more excited about the future of NASCAR racing than it was the past. And I was a big fan of the past because I actually see us working on the right things uh, that will allow us to be successful in the future. It sounds like one of those stories that we'll look forward to being told. NASCAR is pure racing. Thanks for doing this, Brent. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Nate. Thanks again to NASCAR President Brent Dewar for making time for us during a typically busy day for him. I appreciate him sitting down for a while to take a wide range of questions about 
what's ahead for NASCAR, and also tell us more about his background as well. Thanks, too, to Eric Nyquist, Matt Nordby, and John Schwartz of NASCAR IMC for helping coordinate the logistics. The location and time for this conversation were a little bit on the fly, but they ensured it went smoothly. A reminder that NASCAR America is on 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time weekdays on NBCSN. NASCAR is at Chicagoland Speedway this weekend to open the 2017 Cup Series playoffs. That starts Friday with Cup Series practice at 12.30 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN and qualifying at 6.30 p.m. on NBCSN. On Saturday, Cup practice is on CNBC at 11.30 a.m. Eastern and final Cup practice Saturday is on NBCSN at 2 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Xfinity pre-race show at 3 p.m. Eastern with the green flag for the regular season Xfinity Series finale at 3.46 p.m. Eastern Time on NBCSN. Sunday will begin at 1 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN with NASCAR America, Countdown to Green at 2.30 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN, and the Cup Series playoff opener begins at 3.16 p.m. on NBCSN from Chicagoland Speedway. The NASCAR and NBC podcast presented by STP is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audioboom, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you can leave a rating or review or just tell people that you like what you hear, that really helps us out. And if you have feedback for the NASCAR and NBC podcast presented by STP, send it to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast presented by STP. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 